It is my joy again to open up the Word of God to you this morning. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful gospel. Matthew chapter 14. While you're turning, it is common for me to receive emails from listeners around the world thanking this church for its faithful proclamation of the Word of God. Many of them express how they are languishing in churches where truth has been sacrificed on the altar of tolerance and pragmatism. And one listener that I think of this last week from the United Kingdom expressed how there's just a famine for God's Word in England. England is basically indifferent to the Word of God. And in his letter to me, he expressed the words of Amos in chapter 8 and verse 11 that really summarizes where the United Kingdom is, and I would add likewise in the United States for the most part. And there Amos says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Well, I rejoice in the faithful members of Calvary Bible Church, as well as our listeners scattered around the world. Those of you who long to hear the word of God and to do it. And so once again, we bow before the Lord in an act of worship by opening up his sacred revelation to us. And this morning we are in Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Follow along as I read. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning and beginning to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. One of the great joys of growing old, and there are a few, is that as you age, you have the opportunity to reflect upon 
the faithfulness of God in your life. Time and time again, he has proved himself faithful to me, my fortress, my rock, my deliverer, my strength, my refuge. Though I have had, as many of you, many difficulties in life. It's always fascinating when I look back, I see that right when I'm on the very edge of despair, he reaches down and he seizes me and he pulls me back up to a place of safety. Therefore, I can say with great confidence that God is good. God is faithful. He can be trusted. You know, we can go out to a lake and we don't get this much around here because it doesn't get that cold in Tennessee. But where I grew up, it got very cold. And I might be able to say to you, hey, the ice is fine. Come on out with me and we can skate on the ice. And I could say that because I've been out on the ice and I'm fine. Somebody else could come up to the same lake and they might look at the ice and they say, well, you know, it looks safe, but I'm not sure I want to get out on it. And that person could therefore say to somebody else, you know what? I think the ice is okay. I I think it'll hold you. But they would not be able to say it with the same confidence as someone who's been out on the ice. And folks, as you grow old and you trust the Lord and you live on the ice of his faithfulness, you can with great confidence be able to say to other people, the ice holds, trust it. Time and time again, I've seen how the Lord has taken me to the very end of myself to the outer extremities of my finite power and reason, and then suddenly at the last moment lifted me up in some way. And many of you could identify with that as well. And I find great comfort as we look at Scripture that that He literally ordains trials and afflictions so that we are forced to confront our limitations and trust in Him. And then by the strength of His might, He rescues us. But with every deliverance, Our faith is strengthened and gives us greater confidence to set sail into even more ominous seas of spiritual service. But, you know, the Lord cannot use us, cannot send us out into uncharted seas of spiritual service until he has first produced within us a steadfast, confident faith in himself. And this is the sanctifying work of the Savior. And that is what I have titled this sermon this morning, the sanctifying work of the Savior, because this is what we see in this rather familiar historical narrative. This is the theme of the text in which we find ourselves this morning, because folks here, the Holy Spirit gives us a powerful illustration of what he does in the process of sanctification here. He demonstrates the three realities of sanctification. Let me give you a very brief theology lesson here to set the stage before we really unpack the text. As we look at the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, there are many aspects of it. But certainly one component is that of of sanctification. And when we look at the issue of sanctification, there are three marvelous realities which are really Uh, the birthright of every believer as a result of sanctification, three ultimate effects that occur in that in our salvation. And that is sanctification, perseverance or eternal security and glorification. Those three things work together. 
But these become our possession only progressively. They don't happen all at once as the spirit of God, by his grace and enablement, grows us in him. Now, the word sanctification literally means to set apart or to make holy, to set something apart from common use to another use, to to be set away from one thing and to be set unto another thing. And in Christian theology, there are three distinguishable phases of sanctification. And this is what I want to give you real quick. So bear with me. First of all, we see that there is what's called positional sanctification, and this is fully accomplished at the moment of salvation when man is set apart from sin and he's set aside unto God. This is when uh, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. This is positional truth. Our judicial standing before a holy God is that now we are standing in the righteousness of Christ. But secondly, there is progressive sanctification, which differs from positional sanctification. And progressive sanctification is a process of spiritual growth throughout a Christian's life where we become ever more fully set apart from sin and set apart unto God, ultimately until we're conformed to the image of Christ. This is the deliverance, not from the penalty of sin, because that's already taken care of, but from the power of sin. This is conditional truth, not positional truth. Conditional truth dealing with the believer's actual spiritual condition. First Peter 1.15 says, be holy yourselves or sanctified yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And we know that as Jesus prayed in John 17, that we are sanctified by truth. He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. But then there's a third type of sanctification, and that is perfected sanctification. And this is the consummation of the process of sanctification accomplished by God at the moment we are ushered into his presence. And here we are delivered not from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin, but literally from the presence of sin. And this is an eschatological truth, a truth that will fully be realized someday in the future. And it relates to the coming consummation of the salvation of those who have in this life trusted Christ. That will be the time, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.21, when he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, having said that, today we're just dealing with one of these, and that is progressive sanctification. The Westminster Catechism defines progressive sanctification as, and I quote, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, although in regeneration, the governor governing disposition of the soul is made holy, there still remains within us a tendency to evil. As long as we live, we are incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness and we battle with the flesh. But little by little, by the work of the sanctifying, by the sanctifying work of the spirit of God, we become more conformed to the image of Christ and we are less controlled by the power of sin. So today, as we examine the word, we are going to witness the 
supernatural agency of God, working this work of grace, conforming the disciples, sanctifying them. And we're going to see it in three ways. We're going to see it in their deliverance from temptation. We're going to see it in the testing of their faith. And then thirdly, in the exercise of their faith. First, let's notice how the sanctifying work is accomplished as the Lord delivers them from temptation. Now, let's remember the context. The multitudes have been clamoring after Jesus. They've wanted to make him king. Jesus knew their hearts and he also knew the hearts of the disciples. He knew that they were afraid because John the Baptist had just been beheaded. They were afraid of Herod. But now they had been witnessing this astounding miracle of the feeding of about twenty five thousand plus people. And they saw how that he was teaching them to trust in God's resources, not their own, even though, as we're going to see, they didn't fully grasp all of that. But there are two big spiritual issues that Jesus must deal with in the lives of the disciples, fear and pride. Jesus sees that he's got to deal with that. Certainly with fear, with respect to fear, they had a temptation to to panic uh, there was a problem with personally appropriating, appropriating their faith apart from the presence of Jesus. They were used to being around him. And when they weren't around him, they weren't sure they knew how to handle things. And in fact, according to Mark's gospel, we read that the disciples had not understood the miracle of the loaves because their heart was hardened. So there were still issues that needed to be dealt with in the lives of the disciples and certainly one of them was their temptation to panic, their fear. But secondly, we know that they had a temptation to be proud. Again, they saw the massive crowds that were wanting to make Jesus king. And they thought, my goodness, this is time to bring in the kingdom. Look around. Look at all of these people. I mean, this is a dream come true. No more rejection. No more humiliation. No more indifference. Sadly, all of the principles that the Lord had been teaching them and the others in the parables, uh, the things about uh, the, the soil and the seed and the sower and things about the kingdom with respect to the to the wheat and the tares and the kingdom being like a mustard seed and 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 leaven growing from something small to something great. And how it was compared to a, to a treasure that, that, that was uh, hidden in a field and a pearl and so on. Now, all of those things were utterly eclipsed. With the crowd as they're thinking, my goodness, look at the kingdom is here. So here they were not only afraid because they felt vulnerable apart from Jesus, but also he knew about their pride. They were enamored with the numbers of the people. By the way, it has been my observation that spiritually immature people tend to measure success by the size of a crowd or the emotional reaction of a crowd. By quantity, not quality, by religious externals, not internals of the heart. And most people tend to lose all sense of reason when a crowd reaches some kind of a, a frenzied emotional pitch. By the way, this is this is crucial for false teachers. They've got to whip people up into an emotional frenzy. That's why many times there will be 45 minutes of what they would call worship and praise music that helps to alter the state of consciousness of the masses of people so that they can get them to believe the lies that they will foist upon them. So Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew their their shallow faith. He knew 
the dangerous and, and mounting influence of the clamoring multitudes and how that was affecting them, that they were thinking, my, it's time to march on Rome. So let's take back the land and I wonder who's going to be first in the kingdom. I wonder if I'm going to get to govern something and all of that stuff was going on. Perhaps I will be given a place of, of, of position and of prominence. And then suddenly Jesus pops their bubble of emerging pride and abruptly he delivers them from temptation in verse 22 where we read and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The word made indicates a reluctance on their part. They didn't want to go. Imagine the shock. What do you mean? Get into the boat. It's almost night. A storm's brewing. Here's the crowd. It's time to march on Jerusalem. You know, I laugh just when we think everything is exactly the way it ought to be. God has a tendency to suddenly impose his will. We must learn to submit to his perfect plan as inconvenient and as confusing as sometimes it may seem. Well, it was getting dark and certainly the shadows of darkness tend to give rise to irrational fears. But again, keep in mind, they, they knew that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And, and now, if you understand the geography, he was sending them back towards Capernaum. We read in, in John six twenty four which would have been about two to three miles closer towards Herod's territory over in the realm of Tiberias. And they hadn't been apart from Jesus very much. And so this is kind of nerve wracking for them. And Jesus is going to stay there alone. He's going to send us across the Sea of Galilee with the winds picking up. A storm is brewing. Certainly many of them were fishermen and they knew how dangerous those waters were. You know, folks, it's one thing to trust God to feed 25,000 people, but it's quite another to place your life in his care. And that's what was going on with them. But now, to their credit, they obeyed his authority. They didn't demand an explanation like we typically do. At least we don't read it. They didn't say, Lord, wait a minute. We, we, we need an explanation here. Why are you asking us to do something that seems inconsistent with what we think needs to happen? They didn't do that. They just obeyed. It's also interesting at the end of verse 22, the Lord sent the multitudes away. Now, we don't know what he said to them, but we know that he sent them away. And again, I find it fascinating how totally indifferent Jesus is with fickle, emotional crowds of people. You see, friends, you must remember that Jesus came to do the will of the father, not the will of the people. Satan is a master at summoning Great crowds with selfish motives. Satan is the irresistible siren that summons great hordes of ignorant and naive people into the wide gate of apostasy, of emotionalism, of, wa of a watered down gospel, a gospel of self-indulgence. He is the minister to the masses. He is the bishop of the broad way that leads to destruction. And moreover, Satan knows the irresistible appeal of power and prestige. After all, he fell because of those very things. And, you know, I believe that Satan helped draw the crowd to tempt not only the naive disciples, but also the Lord himself. It's an interesting note earlier 
We read about Jesus' baptism and how he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. And in Luke 4.13, we read that when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, catch this, until an opportune time. In other words, earlier Satan had tempted him and now he leaves him, but he's going to wait for an opportune time, literally until a better opportunity should return. Certainly, we know that he tried again to tempt Jesus in the garden, but I believe he was doing it as well here. You know, Satan always has the same motivation to stop the advance to the cross, to stop Jesus, to thwart the eternal purposes of God in redemption by enticing Jesus with the easy way out. So I believe Satan is tempting Christ. Even here and again, back when he was tempting Christ in the wilderness, the third temptation in Matthew four, we read how that he took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Then it goes on to say what Satan said to him, all these things will I give to you if you fall down and worship me. And so I believe in a subtle way, again, he's tempting Jesus. Jesus, why go to the cross? Why all that suffering? I mean, look at the crowds. I mean, they're, they're, you've got them in the palm of your hand. You can establish the kingdom now. Take the easy way out. Dear Christian, please hear me. Satan is as patient as he is cunning. He waits for a more opportune time. He is like a good hunter that studies his prey. And those of you that hunt, as I do, you know that you study the weakness of the animal. You study his habits and passions, the paths that he takes. And then you lie in silent wait until the perfect moment to release the arrow. Beloved Satan does the same thing. We are his prey and our besetting sins, his study. So we must remain vigilant and we must be alert. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 613, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And also, I might add, it's been my observation that. There is a very common temptation for many pastors and others in Christian ministry, and that is. For Satan to come along and to appeal to our pride by summoning applauding crowds. Screaming sycophants have caused the demise of many a good man. I believe that popularity and prosperity are the twin demons of apostasy. I've seen this many times, having worked much in the Christian music industry. You see a person who goes from a garage band singer to suddenly having a recording contract. Suddenly they have thousands of dollars. People are wanting their autographs. They stand on stages where beneath them there are massive crowds of people in a frenzied state of mass idolatry, worshiping them in some way. And they become like Herod in Acts 12, enjoying the adoration of the crowd and they become filled with pride. You remember what happened to Herod? The angel of the Lord struck him with worms and killed him because of his pride. And so often I've seen this, not just with Christian artists, but with other pastors or people that become kind of religious celebrities. 
all of a sudden humility is gone and they become temperamental prima donnas with egos as big as Texas. Well, popularity and prosperity, a dangerous mix. We must be careful. Jesus knows this with his disciples, and so he delivers the disciples from the temptation of being seduced by the applause of the multitude. And he also resists the same temptation for himself. And so he sends both the disciples away as well as the multitudes. And notice in verse 23, and after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Certainly, I'm confident that he was rejoicing before his father for the victory over the enemy. But also, I believe that he was praying for the disciples. Friends, spiritual battles require spiritual weaponry. And the weaponry that we have at our disposal are twofold, the word and prayer. And now we have the incarnate word seeking solitude to commune with his father, knowing what lay ahead in his suffering, longing to be reunited in triune fellowship. He goes to prayer and likewise, knowing his disciples were in peril, knowing the satanic temptations, knowing their vulnerability, their shallow faith and fear, their ever present pride. He prays for them. The divine mediator prays for them because of his great love. And no doubt he prayed for the greatest test of their faith, which he was now orchestrating in a storm. That in the great storm of the sea and in the tempest of what appears to be a divine desertion, he prays that they will have strength and understanding knowing that they would begin to drown in fear and doubt, praying, I'm sure, that they would trust in him and behold his glorious deliverance. So we see, first of all, the Lord delivering them from temptation. But secondly, we now see the testing of their faith. Verses 24 and 25, we read that the boat was already many stadia away from the land. Now, let me help you understand this. A stadia is about an eighth of a mile. And John's gospel tells us that they were about 25 to 30 stadia away. So they were about three or four miles out into the Sea of Galilee. And it says that they were battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, If you look at the Sea of Galilee, you will see at this particular place where they were sent out, it's about eight miles across the sea. And that tells us that they were now about in the middle of it. And of course, this was a region known for its terrible storms. In fact, in Mark 648, Mark tells us that tells us that the men were straining at the oars. They were trying to keep the ship afloat. And I'm sure they were wishing Jesus was there before they had been with him and he had rebuked the wind and the sea and it had become perfectly calm. But now he's not there. At least not physically. Ah, but indeed he was there. How often we are in the same situations. We must go to so many passages of Scripture For example, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? And he goes on to say, 
If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. Oh, child of God, never doubt the omnipresence of our God. He is intimately aware of our thoughts before we think them. He knows our needs before we even experience them. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 13 tells us, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Well, it was the fourth watch of the night, the men straining at the oars. By the way, the fourth watch would have been the hours between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. And so they had been there for about about nine hours straining at the oars. Can you imagine that? Nine hours in the dark in a terrible storm. Again, how often God allows people to go to the very extremes of their physical limitations before he suddenly intervenes. The Lord often delays his mighty hand of deliverance until he is certain That the last vestige of our self-sufficiency has been exhausted. For it is only then that we come to the end of ourselves and reach out to an almighty hand, an outstretched hand that was really extended all along. Notice what it says in verses 26 and 27. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, folks, I know what it's like to be physically Fatigue, you do too. And I also know what it's like to be spiritually fatigued. And frankly, I prefer physical fatigue any day over spiritual fatigue. But when you've got both of them going on, certainly you're going to be predisposed to irrational fears. But friends, to see a man walking on the water, I can understand why they would be afraid. I mean, certainly... This would startle the most intrepid seamen. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. And again, it's important, though both their faith and their flesh were weak, the disciples had obeyed the Lord. They had set out to sea, knowing that a storm was brewing. And this is to their credit. And if I can make this practical, there are times when we do not understand why God is asking us to do certain things. But we need to be obedient. We don't ask why. We are to ask what. God, what must I do to glorify you in what you are asking me to do, even though it may not make any sense to me whatsoever? And so the Lord builds upon their weak faith. And aren't you glad that he does that with us? He takes us where we are and he builds upon that. And beloved, again, the Lord owes us no explanation when he sends us into a storm. As we look through the word of God, we see that his redemptive purposes are often concealed in calamity and suffering. So this is the attitude of faith to say, God, I don't understand why you don't owe me an explanation. I wouldn't understand it if you gave it to me. But I do want to ask what I want to ask God, what can I do that will bring honor to you? that will be submissive to you, that will bring glory to you as I exercise my faith in this trial, in this great time of adversity. Well, this was the great test of their faith. But notice, it did not stop there. There, were, there was now an opportunity to step out on faith, to exercise faith. And thirdly, this is what we see, the exercise of faith. 
You see, Peter now knows it's the Lord and he loves the Lord. He, the, he was the one that was the closest to the Lord. He longs to be by his side and with a heart overflowing with joy. Notice what he says in verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Friends, what a graphic picture of exercising our faith. Think about it. Peter had enough faith. He trusted the Lord enough to leave the safety of the boat, but he didn't have enough to get him to his embrace. You know, it's one thing to plan and to promise to serve the Lord no matter what. It's easy to talk about going to the mission field in the safety of the church. But it's another thing when you get off the plane in Africa. It's another thing to persevere in faith. You know, most missionaries never make it past their first two years. They tell me that most pastors last about four. And so what we see here is that like all of us have a tendency to do, Peter took his eyes off of the object of his faith. He became distracted by the perilous winds that were blowing around him. And suddenly he became seized by fear and, and, and he began to sink. You know, friends, without faith, we would all succumb to the storms of life and we would all sink into despair. But, beloved, the temporal circumstances of life are the are the unrelenting winds and waves that that distract us from keeping our eyes on Jesus. I think of the howling seas of conflict, the turbulence of, of disease the billows that roll of, of, of financial problems. These are typically among the most common detractors of our faith. And suddenly we take our eyes off the Lord and, and we start looking at our problems and, and, and we become overwhelmed with our lack of resources. And then we begin to sink. You know, no matter how strong your faith really is or how well your intentions, we are all prone to this, are we not? We're all prone to lose our focus upon the author and the finisher of our faith and become consumed with the problems at hand. Friends, we must understand that doubt is the great enemy to faith and, and doubt assaults faith when we focus on our problems rather than the God who ordained them. Many times when the problems come along, we begin to think things, even though we wouldn't admit it. That God just doesn't care, that his resources are insufficient, that somehow he is indifferent, that somehow he needs to sit down with us and let us explain to him why the direction that he is taking us is inconsistent with anything that is rational. You remember Job did the same thing and you remember what God did with Job as he intimidated him with his glory over and over again. Until Job realized that God is God and he is not. Beloved, too often we try to use God to solve our problems. 
rather than using our problems to glorify God. You know, the proper response needs to be, oh, dear God, indeed, I pray for deliverance from the storm. But more importantly, I pray for faith to persevere in it. You know, think for a moment upon some great trial you presently are being asked to endure. May I ask you, have you gone to the Lord and thanked him for that trial? Have you gone to him and said, Lord, thank you that you are up to some great work in my life. I don't understand it. And Lord, I'm struggling in it. But I thank you that there is a sanctifying work that is occurring within my heart today. And I praise you for that. And Lord, I can go to James 1, for example, where you tell us to consider it all joy when, when I encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of my faith is going to produce patience, produce endurance, where I will learn to, to, to patiently persevere until you deliver me. And I will even learn to cherish a crucible of grace, knowing that it has been ordained for me by you for my sanctification that I might glorify you. And Lord, I understand what James says when he says, and let it let, and let endurance have its perfect result, that I may be perfect. Lord, thank you for this trial that through it you will perfect me so that I will become more completely obedient to you so that my life will manifest an unblemished lifestyle of godliness. And you go on to say that you will make me complete, that you will help me, therefore, to manifest the virtues of Christ, that I will be lacking in nothing. Lord, thank you for this trial. But, oh, God, I need your strength as I strain against the oars in the middle of the tempest. Friends, is this your attitude? Or do you spend your time, especially in the fourth watch of the night, obsessing over the tempests of the temporal trials that God has brought your way? Oh, we of little faith, why do we doubt? Dear friends, these are the lessons that Peter Learned well that night, the leader of the disciples, one that we would all do well to learn. In fact, later on, he could write in first Peter six, seven, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. By the way, he was writing to people that were being persecuted, that were suffering. And Peter, even now, was uh, was soon to face his death and he knew he was going to be crucified. The Lord had told him that for 40 years he had served the Lord, knowing he was going to be crucified. And he could write this in this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon has summarized it so well, and I quote, remember, he says, dear Christian, remember who it is that hath thee where thou art. It is no harsh tyrant who has led thee into trouble. It is no austere, unloving heart who hath bidden thee pass through this difficulty to gratify a capricious whim. Oh, no, he who troubles thee is Christ. Remember his bleeding hand. And canst thou think that the hand which dropped with gore can ever hang down when it should be stretched for thy deliverance? Think of the eye that wept over thee on the cross. And can the eye that wept for thee be blind when thou art in grief? 
Think of the heart that was open for thee. And shall the heart that did bleed its life away to rescue thee from death be hard and stolid when thou art overwhelmed in sorrow? It is Christ that stands on yonder billow in the midst of the tempest with thee. He is suffering as well as thou art. Peter is not the only one walking on the sea. His master is there with him too. And so is Jesus with thee today, with thee in thy troubles, suffering with thee as he suffered for thee. Shall he leave thee, he that bought thee, he who is married to thee, he that hath led thee thus far, hath succored thee hitherto, he who loves thee better than he loves himself, shall he forsake thee? Oh, turn thine eyes from the rough billow, listen no longer to the howling tempest, turn thine eyes to him, thy loving Lord, thy faithful friend, and fix thy trust on him. Who even now in the midst of the tempest cries, it is I, be not afraid. Friends, what we see here in this text is an amazing demonstration of the sanctifying work of the Savior in the life of the disciples and ultimately a lesson for all of us. It reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Indeed, the Lord is our shepherd and he's going to lead us even into the valley of the shadow of death, even into places that we would not have chosen for ourselves. And when he does so, we can say, as the psalmist did, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Well, for those of us who have experienced the sanctifying work of the Savior, those of us who have seen him over and over deliver us from temptation, and have experienced how he has tested our faith in the raging seas of adversity. For those of us who know and love the Lord, and we've seen how he's given us many opportunities to get out of the boat, to exercise our faith, so that we can experience his, his glorious delivery as he takes us to the furthest extremities of our, of our human limitations. For all of us, we can sing with great conviction, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Oh, what a precious Savior. Amen. Whose love reached down and rescued Peter, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And again, when they got into the boat, isn't it fascinating? The wind stopped. John 6:21, by the way, tells us that it stopped instantly and that the boat was at the land to which they were going instantly. Is, this, is it any wonder why the response of those in the boat was as it should be? You are certainly God's son. Oh, friends, what a glorious God we serve. But for you who refuse to believe that he was the Son of God and that He is the Son of God. For those of you who refuse to trust in Him and prefer to trust only in yourself, those of you who have no faith, you have no hope of deliverance unless you look unto Christ. Your feet currently rest on nothing secure and you walk alone on the water of your own self-sufficiency. 
And apart from faith in Christ, you will no more stand in the presence of a holy God than you can walk across the ocean. And so today I implore you to look upon the Savior. Cast yourself at his feet and tell him what you know is true. Come before him and stand and say, Lord, I'm an unworthy and wretched sinner and I deserve to perish. And friend, I plead with you to plead with him that he will give you his undeserved mercy and grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I close this morning with these personal reflections. Life is filled with gale force winds that cause the waves to roar. And like the men of Galilee, we strain against the oars. With billows high, we cry aloud, O Lord, where have you gone? Then he whispers through the squall, I've been here all along. O we of little faith, why doubt? Why give our hearts to fear? And when the tempest trials doth blow, tis then we must draw near. For in the wind of every storm a sovereign eye doth see the waning faith and broken hearts of those like you and me. And with his outstretched hand of love, he reaches down to save all who trust in him alone for us His life He gave. So when the tumults o'er us roll, let's thank Him for the gale. For in His love He caused the storm. T'was He who set the sail. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in every demonstration of Your sovereignty in our lives. We thank you for the trials that we have experienced, that we are experiencing and that we will experience because we know that it is through them, through that sanctifying work of the Savior, that we become ever more conformed into the image of our glorious Lord. May these truths resonate within the heart of every believer and may you bring conviction to every soul who knows you not as Savior. May today be the day of their salvation the day they experience the miracle of the new birth as they reach up to a Savior's hand who is reaching for them. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.